And again, let me welcome you to Hope Fellowship this morning. It's uh, good to see all of you. Uh, it's good to gather together to worship God and hear from Him in His Word. So that's what we're going to be doing now. Uh, we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, looking at verses 8 through 12. Uh, so listen as I read those verses, and then I will pray for us as we look in God's Word. So 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 12. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we come before you again, uh, just recognizing our need for you. Uh, lift up each person in this room, that our minds could be calm, that our hearts could be still. Uh, Christ, that your peace would reign in our hearts. Uh, Lord, give us ears to hear your word. Uh, give us hearts to believe and obey. Uh, Lord, use this time, use uh, this letter from first, of First Peter to edify us as a church, uh, to encourage us uh, as those who are called by Christ to follow him. Uh, so use this time to that end. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So before David was king in Israel, he spent some time as a fugitive. Uh, if you remember the story, uh, David became one of Saul's men, and then he went on to great fame when he killed Goliath. Uh, but then, uh, later on, there were some developments, and Saul was falling from power. God was taking the throne and the kingdom away from Saul as he was giving it to David, uh, as David was on the path to ascend to that throne. Uh, but as Saul was falling, he was envious of David, and so he began threatening him, accusing him. Saul was looking for ways to kill David. Uh, there are several scenes where Saul gets angry and throws a spear at David. So David found himself on the run from Saul, and at one point uh, during his time as a fugitive, he found himself in a Philistine city, and... Uh, the problem was, if you remember, David or Goliath was a Philistine. Uh, so the Philistines, they knew about David. And in this particular city, Gath, some of the people recognized him. And because they recognized him, uh, David was afraid of what that king, what that Philistine king might do to him. So according to 1 Samuel 21, verse 8, David changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let spittle run down his beard. Not exactly a high point in the life of David, but during that time, uh, while he changed his behavior before those people, he composed a psalm. It was a psalm about God's faithfulness and about how God watches over those who fear him. Uh, we know, we've seen that the letter of 1 Peter addresses Christians, it addresses us as sojourners and exiles in the world. We see that in chapter 2, verse 11, 
and a couple other places. And then in our passage today, Peter quotes from that Psalm of David, Psalm 34, and it appears that Peter does so because our situation as Christians today is comparable in some way to David's situation. Hopefully not that we are pretending to be insane, scratching at doors and drooling on ourselves, but that we are seeking to obey God, uh, that we are seeking to live lives based on our fear of him, even as exiles in a hostile land, and that we, like David, long for better days. We long for God uh, to look on us with favor. So 1 Peter 3, uh, verses 8 through 12 It's filled with instruction on how we should treat each other. It begins with the word finally. And if you look back up to verse, uh, chapter two, verse 12, and what follows, we see that Peter's been giving instruction on how our lives uh, may bear witness to Christ, even in the midst of a hostile world. And so uh, this passage that we're looking at today is a concluding set of instructions telling us to do good to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ and telling us to do good to those who mistreat us, those who speak hatefully about us. But at the center of this passage, Peter addresses his audience using the words from David's psalm in an interesting way. He addresses his audience as whoever desires to love life and see good days. So we're going to look at what this passage has to say about how we treat each other, how we treat others, but we're going to think about those things, those instructions that Peter gives us in relation to that desire to love life. So here's my main point for us this morning. Those who desire to love life are called by Christ to be a blessing to each other and to enemies. So let's look first at that desire to love life. So point number one, the desire to love life motivates us to bless others. Uh, So 1 Peter 3.10 is where we see that phrase, whoever desires to love life and see good days. And that's a quotation from Psalm 34.12. It's a striking phrase. And it's striking, in my opinion, because there's a difference between loving life and desiring to love life, between seeing good days and desiring to see good days. If I were to ask how many of you desire to love life, I suppose all of you would raise your hands. But if I were to ask how many of you currently love life, how many of you are currently seeing good days, I imagine some of those hands would go down. We want to love life, but we don't always love life. And I think by addressing us in this way, God is beckoning us. He's calling out to us. He's asking, do you have this desire? Do you want to love life and see good days? If so, then listen up. Pay attention to what I have to say to you. I think that's what God is doing by addressing us in that way. Well, we know uh, that one day God is certainly going to satisfy that desire that we have to love life and see good days. Uh, Peter talks about it in uh, chapter 5, verse 10, uh, when he talks about how God is going to bring us to the eternal glory that he's called us to in Christ. Uh, We also see it in chapter 1, verse 4, 
when it says that we will receive an unfading and undefiled inheritance that's kept secure for us in heaven. But uh, in light of Psalm 34 as a whole, and in light of the way that Peter is using it to instruct us on how to live now during our time of sojourning, how to live in relation to each other, we can also think about how God might satisfy that desire now. Uh, Even if it's just a foretaste of what's to come, even if it's in the midst of trials and troubles that we could love life and see good days. So we need to remember uh, that God, he is the one who guides us in satisfying that desire, right? God beckons us with this wholesome desire to love life and see good days. And that stands in contrast to the demands of sinful passions that Peter talks about in a number of places in 1 Peter. Uh, So in chapter two, verse 11, Peter describes those passions in this way, the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So those passions make demands on us. And we're tempted frequently to believe that we will see good days by listening to those passions, by cultivating those passions, by gratifying their desires. Uh, But in the cold light of day, we all know that's not true, right? We all know that the the deceptive nature of those sinful passions, we all know uh, that they don't truly lead us to good days. Uh, Instead, the desire to love life and see good days is truly satisfied through obedience to Christ. We also need to remember what a good day actually looks like. I think that's part of the process in which God uh, is working on us, that we can see a good day when it's happening to us. Uh, I remember a day years ago, uh, I was at home with Sam and Evan. They were about five and three. Casey and Annie were gone. And I had plans for that day, uh, work I wanted to get done in the backyard. Uh, But I also had to watch Sam and Evan uh, along the way. So my great plan was to have them come outside to, you know, quote unquote, help me. Uh, So they came outside, we got geared up. I had a fire going, burning some scrap wood. I had yard tools all over the place for various projects. I had emptied out a shed that I was gonna move to a different spot in the yard and All the while, the boys were with me, asking questions, picking up tools, digging in the dirt, throwing sticks in the fire, and stressing me out, Um, right? Put that down, bring that to me, stay away from the fire, right? I was stressed out and I was frustrated that I wasn't being patient with them. Then we took a break for lunch uh, we grabbed some buckets and chairs and uh, sat, in the sa- sat in the shade of that empty shed eating pizza. And while we were sitting there eating the pizza, the boys asked me, can we do this again? I thought they meant like eat pizza in the shed. Kind of cool, but, uh, and they were like, no, no, all of this, being outside, guy time, doing this stuff together. And I was like, oh, they're actually, they're actually having fun. They're enjoying themselves. This is important to them. Uh, They're they're having a ton of fun. So as you can imagine, that day immediately became a good day for me because I was able to see it for what it was, not a chance to be super productive, uh, but a chance to uh, hang out uh, with the boys, eat pizza in the shed, uh, throw sticks in the fire, things like that. I saw it as a blessing, a chance to hang out with them, a chance to be kind and gentle with them. 
So God uses the desires, or God uses the desire to love life and see good days to motivate us to do good to others. He holds that, he holds that out before us. So in the next two points, uh, we're going to look more specifically at the instruction that Peter gives us. We're going to look at how we are to do good or be a blessing to others, uh, both to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ and to those who treat us as enemies. Uh, so I kind of divide the instruction into those two categories, uh, though I will acknowledge that these two categories sometimes often overlap with each other, uh, that it is those closest to us, uh, it's those in our family, it's our brothers and sisters in Christ uh, whom we often consider enemies or whom we are often um, right, trying to decide whether or not we're going to return evil for evil with. Uh, but I do think we see primarily in verse 8 instruction directed uh, to, uh, to the church, to the community of believers, and then in verse 9 instruction to those who mistreat us, those who do evil to us. So point number two, we bless each other by being united in heart and mind. In Romans 12, 18, the Apostle Paul says, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And if we look at the teachings of Jesus, he gives two very practical directions in which we can pursue peace. Uh, the first direction that Jesus gives us is to pursue peace with those whom you have sinned against. Matthew 5, 23 through 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So that's one direction we can pursue peace. Those whom we have sinned against. The other direction that Jesus gives us is with those who have sinned against us. Let's see, those whom you have sinned against and those who have sinned against you, that's everyone you know. All right, so Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, I don't think this means that we need to hunt each other down for every minor offense. But if there's something between you and another person that won't go away, something that continues to bother you, something that uh, in an ongoing way is affecting the way that you treat that person, the way that you interact with that person, then go to them humbly, uh, go to them and pursue peace in a godly and, and lowly, humble manner. So we're to pursue peace, seek after it. And then in verse 8, uh, in how we treat one another, uh, Peter uses uh, five words in Greek or phrases in English, but five words that further describe how all of us, as the body of Christ, can pursue peace with each other. Uh, so there's five, five words. The first and the last have to do with our minds. The second and the fourth have to do with our hearts or our emotions. And then the middle one has to do with our mutual affection for each other. And then all together, they just describe how we should be united to each other in heart and mind. Uh, so let's look at those five phrases. Uh, the first one, unity of mind. This does not mean that we all have to think exactly the same thing, uh, but it means that our thoughts would be harmonious, that my thoughts 
would be in harmony with your thoughts as fellow followers of Christ. Uh, that our thoughts would fit well with each other, that our minds would be following the same overall path uh, that we're guided to follow in Scripture, a path set out for us by Christ, a path that's shaped by the desire to glorify God and submit to his word. Uh, We come from different backgrounds. We have different personalities and temperaments and opinions. So, of course, There are going to be differences. There are going to be disagreements, even sharp disagreements. But those differences and disagreements among us uh, shouldn't lead to unnecessary division. There should be an underlying unity of mind, right? Something that holds us together, even in the midst of those differences and disagreements. uh, Something that helps us work through those things and move forward together as part of the same family, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, So we should be striving to understand each other. Uh, We should be quick to listen and slow to speak. Uh, The second one is sympathy. Sympathy happens when you feel what another person is feeling, even if you don't experience what they experienced. Sympathy is when you suffer alongside that other person. Years ago, I remember reading a book about martyrdom in the early church, uh, reading these horrific stories of men and women being tortured and killed in the Roman Empire because of their faith in Christ. Uh, Those persecutions and martyrdoms, if you know anything about church history, uh, became central to the identity of the early Christians. But this book was interesting Uh, Not interesting, it was something else. Well, anyways, uh, the the book was skeptical. Uh, The book was critical, and it wondered if uh, making martyrdom such a central part of the identity of the early church wasn't just a bit overblown, basically. Because percentage-wise, if you do the math, only a very small minority of Christians were ever martyred in the Roman Empire. And a lot of those persecutions that happened, they were limited to, to fairly small geographical areas. Well, that book bothered me, or that part of the book, the argument that the author was making bothered me. And here's why. Because it didn't account for sympathy. Imagine if you were a member of one of those early churches. Imagine if two or three people from your church or from a nearby church were imprisoned, tortured, and killed because they were part of the church. Well, even if it was just a small number of people, everyone would be feeling what they were feeling, right? The experience of one would make an indelible mark on all. The experience of one would become part of the identity of the church as a whole. And that's the way it should be. 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So let's work to cultivate sympathy with each other. Uh, There are some here today who need it from us. Third, brotherly love. This is the word that that city in Pennsylvania gets its name from, Pittsburgh? No, no, Philadelphia, Philadelphia. Um, Brotherly love, it has to do with loyalty and belonging and mutual care. It has to do with having each other's back. Uh, When I was a kid, 
uh, brotherly love frequently expressed itself in an unrefined form of stop picking on my brother, that's my job. Um, But in its true form, in its Christ-like form, our mutual affection for each other as brothers and sisters in Christ is one of the central marks of Christianity. Uh, We're members of the same family. God is our father and Christ is our brother. And that eternal bond uh, should supersede any lesser loyalties we may have. If you want a biblical picture of that kind of mutual affection, uh, look at the friendship between David and Jonathan, a friendship between David and Jonathan that had to endure uh, Saul, Jonathan's father, trying to kill David. That would put stress on a friendship. And uh, it, uh, it had to endure the fact that the throne of Israel was being taken away from Jonathan's family and being given to David. Nonetheless, even in the, in the midst of all that politics and violence and division, all those things going on, uh, 1 Samuel 18.1 tells us about Jonathan's heart for David. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Uh, that's the kind of affection the kind of love that we should have for each other. Uh, Fourth is a tender heart. Uh, In English, we think of the heart as the kind of the place of emotion within us. Uh, That's why this word is translated in in English as a tender heart. Uh, But to be more precise, it's talking about your gut. Uh, It's talking about having deep feelings of compassion and tenderness towards each other. So when you see the weaknesses and vulnerabilities of another person? Uh, are you tempted to exploit it in some way? Are you, uh, do you mock it? Are you rough or callous towards that person? Or are you soft and gentle and patient? Is your heart tender uh, towards them because of those weaknesses, because of those vulnerabilities? There's obviously a lot of overlap between being sympathetic and being tender-hearted here. Uh, they both have to do with our emotions, towards each other. The problem, of course, is that it's hard to develop and maintain those soft, gentle feelings for the people that we're closest to, right? It's easy to have warm affection for a casual acquaintance uh, that you just met and you hit it off with them. Uh, Or in your family, right, it's easy to be nice to your cousins that you see like once or twice a year. But it's a whole different story uh, to be nice to your brothers and sisters that you live with every day. Right? It, it, it's hard to love the people that you're with every day. It takes, takes work to foster and maintain a tender heart, not to be hard-hearted or callous towards them. And then finally, a humble mind. Uh, moving from the heart back to the head, we're called to have humble minds, and Philippians 2 uh, describes that well for us. Philippians 2 presents Jesus as our example. Uh, We're told that in humility, we should count others as more significant than ourselves. We should view ourselves as servants of other people, putting their needs ahead of our own. Uh, So this is telling us to have an honest assessment of ourselves. A proud mind does not unite you to other people. It doesn't bless them. They don't enjoy it. You're not displaying God's kindness to them with a proud mind. Right? It causes you to, to judge them, to look down on them and despise them. 
It's interesting in Peter's day, this idea of having a, a humble disposition uh, was viewed um, by the pagans as a weakness, by a vulnerability, something that was befitting the poor and the lowly in society, but not, not a virtue, not something that you would strive after. But in contrast to that worldly way of thinking, uh, Peter presents it to us as a virtue, having a humble mind. And it is a virtue. In fact, all of these qualities, because of the blessings that they bring, are virtues. Uh, They bring peace. They bring unity. Uh, They draw us to each other. They help us kind of get out of our own way so that we can see good days together. So that's point number two, that uh, we bless each other um, by being united in heart and mind Point number three, we bless our enemies by repaying evil with good. So here we're looking at Peter's instruction in verse 9, which is supported by uh, commands given in verses 10 and 11 from Psalm 34. Uh, So what I want to do is think about these commands that Peter gives us in a three-step progression. Uh, The progression is going to begin kind of somewhere in the realm of, that sounds pretty hard, and then it's going to end somewhere in the realm of, Are you crazy? Who actually does that? Well, Jesus, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, So let's begin with that first step, starting in the realm of, that sounds pretty hard, which is this, don't do evil things. Uh, We're told that if we desire to love life and see good days, we should not do or say evil things. As uh, verse 11 says, we should turn away from evil, right? Turning away is that idea of repentance. You're heading in one direction, stop, turn around, and go the other way. And uh, if you look down in chapter 4, verse 3, uh, you can get an idea of what sorts of things are evil. Uh, Peter lists for us there sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Uh, So stay away from, don't do uh, those sorts of things. And then back in chapter 3, verse 10, uh, it it draws our attention to the evil things that we do with our mouths, the the evil things that we do with our lips and our tongues. So our tongues participate in evil uh, when they gossip or when they malign other people. Our tongues and our lips participate in evil when they're filled with insults and harshness and coarse language. Uh, We also do evil when we speak deceitfully. Sometimes we speak deceitfully just by telling a lie, right? Saying something that's not true. But there are other ways that we deceive. Uh, Sometimes we deceive by withholding information. We only say what we want someone to hear. We carefully select our words to make others believe what we want them to believe. And when we're doing that, we're trying to bait them, right? We're trying to trap them, to trick them, uh, to to doing what we want them to do, believing what we want them to believe. Uh, But we're told in this passage that we should not do those sorts of evil things. So that's uh, phase one, and that's pretty hard to not do evil things. But then uh, the second kind of step in this progression, uh, point B, don't repay evil with evil, right? You can say, okay, we're not supposed to do bad things, uh, but what about those situations where the other person started it? Is there an exception clause for that? No, there's not. But there's this strange sense of uh, propriety within us that says it's fitting when someone slaps you that you would slap them back. That it's okay to insult someone if they insulted you first. 
people do evil things, right? They mistreat us. They revile us as Christians. And to revile means, uh, it's a strong word, and it means to speak about us in ways that are highly insulting and accusatory and abusive. People do those things. But we're told not to get even. Verse 9, it says, don't repay evil for evil or insult for insult, even if you think the other person deserves it. Uh, Because generally, if someone slaps you, you slap them back, but just a little bit harder. They insult you, you insult them back, but just a little bit deeper. So, So our instruction here forbids us from doing that, don't repay insult for insult, uh, even if they deserve it. Instead, it'd be good for us to remember uh, the words of Jesus in Matthew 12, 36, uh, that we will all give an account for every careless word we utter. Well, things are getting pretty difficult with this second step in the progression. It's hard enough not to do evil things, but it's even harder not to do evil things when the other person starts it, when the other person is provoking you. Sometimes they even want to bait you. They want you. They want you to engage in the argument. They want you to engage in the conflict with them. But then it gets even harder. Not only are we not supposed to repay evil with evil, but the third step in this progression, we're called to repay evil with good. Right? It's not just that we refrain from repaying evil with evil, but we're looking for ways to repay those evil deeds and insults with kindness and with blessings. Uh, Matthew 5, 39 through 41, uh, Jesus says, Do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now we're in that realm of, are you crazy? Like, who actually does that? I remember a while ago, the youth group was going through the Sermon on the Mount, and it was wonderful to see the students' reaction uh, to this passage, uh, particularly uh, some of the students who had never really heard this teaching before, right? A lot of times we're familiar with it, the, the shockingness of it wears off, uh, but it, it was just a, a good reminder for me of how shocking this teaching of Jesus actually is. Uh, So, of course, we had to translate it kind of into a modern-day situation that the students could relate to, uh, and it was basically this. What should you do if some kid comes up to you and steals your M&Ms? Take them back. Slug them in the gut. Steal some of their food, right? Those are the kind of responses I got. Well, Jesus says that when they come up to you and steal your M&Ms, you should ask them, would you like to have my Coke as well? What? (laughs) That was the response from the students. That's crazy. There's no way I could possibly do that. And perhaps that is how you feel this morning. As you think through these commands in our passage, right? Hard enough just to not do evil. It's really hard not to uh, retaliate when someone's provoking you. But when the other person is provoking you, insulting you, mistreating you, that you would be intentionally looking for ways to be kind to them and to bless them, Isn't that just out of our league as humans? Well, yes, it is. And that leads us to point number four. Christ's call enables us to bless others as we are blessed by God. So we can find strength and hope in Christ's call on our lives. 
He's the good shepherd. He knows us by name. And when he calls us, it's a powerful, life-giving, fall, life-giving call. At the end of verse 9 says, Bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Uh, That word called, that verb called, it's not a small word, it's a huge word. It's talking about the eternal God. It's talking about the living Christ, that he's the one who's calling you. It may appear as we look at that sentence uh, at first, that it's saying uh, that we should bless others in order to earn a blessing from God. Uh, but, but let me just point out a couple of, couple of things that kind of steer us away from that interpretation. Uh, first is the verb obtain, uh, obtain a blessing. Uh, it, it could also be translated as, an, as inherit. And when we inherit something, it doesn't really convey the idea of earning a wage. When you inherit something, it conveys the idea of being given something by your father because you are his children, because you are his child. Uh, Second thing to point out, uh, again, is that word calling. Uh, The calling that Peter points to in this verse, the call of Christ on our lives, as I said, is a powerful, comprehensive call. Uh, When Christ calls us to follow him, uh, it's his voice from beginning to end that we follow uh, in the Christian life. It's by his strength that we bless those who revile us. Uh, When he calls us, Certainly he calls us to, that, to inherit that eternal blessing. He also calls us today to be like our Father in heaven. And what is our Father in heaven like? Well, Jesus tells us our Father in heaven shows kindness to his enemies. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So when we repay evil with good, we are fulfilling our call to imitate God. And Christ did it first. He went before us. He set the example and opened the way. He calls us to follow him. Uh, He is the one who enables us to repay evil with good. Then that leads us to our fifth and final point, our conclusion. It also leads us back briefly to that desire to love life and see good days. Uh, Point five, the desire to love life is satisfied by the face of God. Verse 12 presents us with a stark contrast. There are those who do evil. This verse says that God's face is against them. He's opposed to them. There's a direction they want things to go, and God resists them. He's he's in opposition to what they want to do. Uh, For those people, good days are not on the horizon. But then there are the righteous, those who keep their tongues from evil Uh, who seek peace with others, those who are humble and sympathetic and kind, who repay evil with blessing. God's eyes are on them. Even in the midst of trouble, even even when evil comes, uh, he's watching over us. Uh, His ears, it says, are open uh, to hear our prayers. So if you desire to love life and see good days, live as Christ called you to live, uh, let's be united in mind. Let's show love to each other, and and maintain tender hearts towards one another. If we do these things, we will be a blessing to each other and even to our enemies. 
I was in the backyard again recently with my children, not to work, but to hang out by the fire. And uh, Samuel was bringing a big branch over for the fire. He was kind of goofing off, swinging it around. And at one point he swung it and he didn't realize what was happening. And it uh, hit one of our kind of plastic outdoor chairs. Actually, it didn't really hit the chair, the armrest of it, more like it just kind of went right through it without even (laughs) slowing down. Um, And you can imagine my response, right? I began expressing to Samuel my thoughts on his action, uh, but not exactly, in, not exactly in a tender way. And there was this moment, I could see it in Samuel's face, where he had the choice. He could have responded back to me with harshness, uh, but he didn't. He softened. Uh, he, he brought harmony back to our family, right? Our little group in, in the backyard. Uh, by bringing in some humor. Uh, so he sat in the chair and was leaning back as the chair was like bending and twisting underneath him. And he was like, look, it's fine. You can't even hardly notice. Um, and then that helped my heart soften, right? I started laughing as the chair just totally crushed apart uh, beneath him. Uh, so it softened me. It, it brought harmony between Samuel and I. It brought harmony with the rest of us, uh, you know, the, the other uh, family members who were there with us and we were, have, we were able to have a good day uh, by the fire. It's amazing how far uh, those, those little things that we do, moving in that direction of repaying evil with good, how far those things can go in unity and harmony with each other. Let me pray. Lord, I confess that this passage is convicting for me. I trust that it is uh, convicting for all of us in this room. Uh, Lord, we desire to gratify those sinful passions. Uh, help us to see, though, the uh, passing pleasures that they bring and help us to see just the uh, eternal and wholesome and, and goodness of satisfying that desire to see, uh, to love life and see good days by walking in obedience to you. Christ, we are thankful for your call on our lives. Uh, may we walk uh, in obedience to you following closely after you. It's in your name we pray, amen.